Listener discretion is advised. True crime can be strangely fascinating. This true crime is odd, macabre, and haunted. I'm Diane, your guide into the shadows. Welcome to Phantasmal Crime. Flagstaff of 1937 was quite different from the sleepy little railroad town it had once been. Immigrants from Boston had passed through this pine forest near the mountains in 1876 and marked their camp with a pine tree stripped of its bark and branches and crowned it with an American flag in honor of the country's centennial. Their Flagstaff became a landmark and eventually the name of the town. By the 1930s, Flagstaff had become a thriving small town thanks to the local university, the Lowell Observatory, and tourists coming to see the Grand Canyon. The wealthy side of town was on LaRue Street, and it was here, on North LaRue Street, that the Walkup family home was located. In our modern era, it's sad to say, but family annihilators are not as shocking as they had once been. While not common, A family member slaughtering several members of their own family happens far too often. The Amityville horror occurred in the aftermath of Ronald DeFeo Jr., killing his parents and four of his siblings. Familicide is predominantly a male phenomenon. The thought of a mother killing her children is nearly unfathomable for many of us. There was Susan Smith, who killed her two sons in 1994 by drowning them in her car. Andrea Yates drowned her five children in 2001. The podcast, Broken Hearts, featured the Hart family, whose two mothers drove the family off a cliff in their family car in 2018. Mothers killing the family doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And in many cases, the mother also commits suicide. In 1937, Marie Walkup would join the list of women committing maternal filicide. James Douglas Walkup, or J.D. as everyone called him, was a prominent member of the Flagstaff community. J.D. was born in 1899, and he came to Flagstaff from Nashville, Tennessee after World War I, in which he had fought in six major battles in Belgium and France. J.D.'s wife, Thelma Marie Green, had come here from Nebraska, where she was born in 1905. The two met while working at Babbitt Brothers. They fell in love and married in 1925. Shortly thereafter, they started a family, and by 1937, they had four children. The family lived on a large corner lot on LaRue Street in a two-story, 1,500-square-foot house with a detached garage and small guest house. J.D. was the chairman of the County Board of Supervisors and part of the Flagstaff Chamber of Commerce and very active in the community. It was a rare week that passed when the local paper didn't have his name in their pages. Unfortunately, the most prominent story about J.D. Walkup that would go on to international infamy would be about the murder of all of his children at the hand of his wife. Walkup's first child, Daniel, was born on January 5, 1927. 
Their second child, Rosemarie, was born on August 24, 1929. Baby number three was John Samuel, who was born on January 6, 1933. The final child was Elizabeth, whom everyone called Phoebe, and she was born on November 26, 1935. The family continued to prosper through the years, but while J.D. made the society pages often, not much was ever written about Marie. She was clearly busy raising four children, but she seemed to be a bit of a recluse, not getting involved in functions, at least following the papers. Nobody really had any idea what Marie was doing. Was it that she was an introvert and just didn't want to go out socially? Did she not go out because the community felt like they had rejected her in some way? Or was there something going on with her, perhaps mentally? In July of 1937, there was a meeting of county supervisors in Phoenix, Arizona, and J.D. attended. At the same time, there was a women's baseball tournament being hosted in Phoenix. Several women from Flagstaff were going to compete in that tournament, and since this would be a long drive, J.D. offered to drive some of those women. So J.D. was off to his meeting, leaving Marie back at the house with the children. Marie hadn't been feeling well for at least a month. She had some kind of stomach ailment that the local doctor, Dr. Fronsky, was treating, but with little success. The walk-ups had just come through a busy time, with Flagstaff hosting the 8th Annual All-Indian Powwow, which was a three-day event that was actually broadcast over NBC. J.D. had turned most of his attention to that, and now he was off for this meeting out of town. The day before J.D. left, July 21st, Marie had again called the doctor complaining that nothing seemed to be helping her stomach, and now she was worried that the children may be dealing with the same thing. This didn't detour J.D., who left bright and early on July 22nd. The walk-up children were last seen playing in their front yard that morning. Not much else is known about that day, but Marie called Dr. Fronsky's house again that evening. The doctor was away attending a picnic in his honor, but he left his son Robert home to take messages. Robert wrote down Marie's message, which was, Please have Dr. Fronsky call at the house on his early round of visits. Be sure to tell him not tonight, but tomorrow morning. The doctor returned home after midnight, read the message, and then headed to bed. A 29-year-old sawmill worker named Ed Conrad was out taking a drive with his girlfriend, Miriam Moore, his sister Rose, and her boyfriend, Mark Yates, on the evening of July 22nd. They parked at the Flagstaff Country Club and trespassed through the wooded area of the golf course there, taking swigs of whiskey from Ed's flask. The four young people came to a stop when they spotted a car sitting halfway off the frontage road near the golf course. This was an unusual sight, especially at night, so the group approached the car slowly. They could see the driver's side door was open, and then Rose gasped when she saw a bare foot. Ed ran over and saw a woman lying on her back outside the driver's side door. Her nightgown was soaked in blood, and a German army rifle was propped beside her, the muzzle pointing away. There was a huge wound in her chest. The group ran to their car to get help. It was after midnight when Ed beat on the door of the sheriff's office. He stammered about seeing a dead woman, and the two deputy sheriffs on duty, Forrest Willis and Perry Francis, quickly flew into action and drove back out to the scene with Ed. <laughs> 
Deputy Francis immediately recognized the walk-up's car. When the deputy sheriffs looked at the woman, they had no doubt it was Marie. Deputy Francis headed back to town to organize a coroner's jury. He roused the county health officer, Dr. Sherman, and the coroner, Max Miller. The three men decided they better check out the walk-up home to make sure the children were okay. They all knew that J.D. was out of town. When they arrived, they found the house quiet and dark with a note nailed to the front door that read, To Dr. Fronsky, look inside the bedrooms. What the men would find shocked the small town. The house was quiet. They stepped into the first bedroom on the right and found a crib and a bed inside. 19-month-old baby Elizabeth was in her crib on her back and appeared sound asleep. Her blanket was pulled up all the way to her chin and she had a stuffed bear sitting right there under her chin. Her 10-year-old brother, Daniel, appeared to be asleep in the bed next to her crib, but they were not asleep. The men pulled the sheets back and saw ugly bruises around their throats, and clearly, neither child was alive. The men went back outside and awaited the arrival of Dr. Fronsky. Dr. Fronsky arrived around 1.30 a.m., and he headed upstairs first thing and found the other two walk-up children dead in their beds. All the beds had been made with fresh sheets, and the children were in clean pajamas. The small bodies were taken to the county morgue for autopsies. The Daily Sun reported on July 23, 1937, after 4 o'clock this morning, at Flagstaff Undertaking Parlors, it was discovered that the three younger children were stabbed directly over the heart area with a fine instrument. A strange circumstance that delayed the finding of the stab wounds was that there was no blood on the beds, the nightclothes, or the children's bodies. There was a man's handkerchief knotted at two corners and twisted, that is believed may have been used as a tourniquet. When the exams were complete, it was revealed that all four children had been stabbed at least once, but Rose's puncture deflected off of a rib. The other three children had two puncture marks. It was believed an ice pick was used. All four children were strangled. Rosemary appeared to have resisted a bit. The authorities deduced that Marie Walkup had dispatched her children quickly and effectively, grabbed the army rifle, drove the family car to the golf course, and used her foot to fire the shotgun, killing herself. J.D. was informed by the night clerk at his hotel that the police needed to speak with him, and he was told that Marie was dead, but the children weren't mentioned at that time. J.D. hurried home. When he arrived at the sheriff's office, he was told the full extent of his loss, and one could only imagine how he must have felt. Marie had left J.D. a note that read, Because of my lack of discipline, the children are happier to go this way. Only grief would come to them. You are strong in faith, never doubting. Mercy to my people. I love you, and I have failed. Let Lala help you, and the service be private. She will find what things we need. Another note was written to Marie's mother and sister that detailed how the memorial service should be conducted and what to do with some household items. Within days, most national papers were carrying the story, and even a few internationally. The four walk-up children were buried in a large plot, side by side, at the Citizen Cemetery in the Masonic section. Marie was buried in the same plot, at the head of and at a right angle to the graves of her children. 
Interestingly, through the years, a tree took root in the middle of the plot, and it separated Marie from the children. This tree was eventually cut down, but the stump remains. J.D.'s family did the best they could to comfort him. His sister and her daughter rented an apartment in Flagstaff and lived there with J.D. as he got his life back together. By September, he was back to his civic duties. One has to find a way to go on. Flagstaff certainly did. After 1938, the walk-up murders were given no more attention, and most people had no idea they had even happened a couple of decades later. By August of 1939, J.D. had remarried. Once America entered World War II, J.D. decided to re-enlist. He was divorced by this time and eventually came home in 1943 after being wounded in battle. He found love for a third time with a young woman from Flagstaff named Doris, and they married in 1948. They had a son together named James. So J.D. did find happiness again. The human spirit is resilient. Susan Johnson wrote the book Flagstaff's Walk-Up Family Murders, a shocking 1937 tragedy, and she shared some details about hauntings connected to the walk-up home with me. Johnson had been walking past the house when she saw a man sitting outside, and she decided to ask him if he realized what had happened in the house. She was surprised when he told her that there had been a murder there and that his grandparents had actually bought the house from J.D. for a song and a dance because nobody wanted to live in a house where four children had been killed. Here is what Johnson told me. He said his mother and sister were at least teenagers at that time. He said his aunt, so his mother's sister, she would not go upstairs in the house. She hated the house. She swore it was haunted. His mother was the one who decided, who was able to, who stayed in it after she got married. And when he was born, this man, he was raised in this house until he was like 10 or 11 years old. I said, well, how did you feel about it? You know, how did your mother feel about it? He goes, well, my mom thought it was haunted, but she just, she would just keep on doing whatever she was doing and ignored it. He said, I never noticed anything. I said, oh, I see. He said, yeah, I don't let that kind of thing get to me. He said, but he said when he got married and his wife was expecting, they moved into that house. And they had their little girl and they raised her there for about 10 years. And he said when his little girl was about three or four years old and she was at the breakfast table, she suddenly looked up and said, you know, there's little kids that play in my room. He said his wife got very freaked out about it. He was not so freaked out about it for some reason. Um, But they did notice, too, that she would sometimes sound like she'd be upstairs in her room talking to someone and there's nobody there. One time she also said to them, you know, I woke up, I woke up last night and they were all standing over my bed and looking at me. And he said, who was looking at you? And she said, the children. I happened to run into somebody I had worked with. Um, I hadn't seen her in about 10 years. And she asked me what I was doing. And I was gave her a little rundown on some of the um, some of what I had learned. And she says, oh, we had a house on LaRue when my daughter was growing up, and I've never heard anything about any haunted house or murders. And I said, well, it said you can Google it, you know, that the murder was reported, and there's you can find articles of it online. And for some reason, we ran into each other again. Again, this woman I hadn't seen in 10 years, a few days later. And she come grabbed me, and she said, oh, my God, I was driving up LaRue, and I, pa- I remembered what you said. I passed by the house. And I thought, oh, that's where, 
the house where my daughter's best friend lived. And she says, I've got to tell you something. One day when my daughter was like five years old, she went to spend the night there. And she came running home and said, I am never going to spend the night there again. That that place is haunted. My friend, who's a very sensible kind of person, said she just didn't want to encourage her daughter's imagination, didn't just kind of change the subject and just, oh, okay, that's fine. Well, she can come over here and spend the night then. It didn't explore it any further because she knew nothing about that. And so she told me that story. And I told the man that. And he goes, oh, yeah, that was one of my daughter's friends. And he said, you know, I got curious about uh, the walk-up murders. So I, I went down when I was downtown, I around NAU, I went across to the cemetery and started looking for the gravesite. He said, and when I found it, he said, it really kind of hit me. He said, they were murdered on July 22nd, 1937. And my daughter was born on July 22nd. 1987. Exactly 50 years later was when his daughter was born. So he kind of, he said, oh, that was kind of like an aha moment. Mm -hmm. But then I kind of had to sit down and and get my breath a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, I really think that that's probably, there's been activity around that particular house. It, It just, and it's kind of a weird house too. It does have a weird energy to it. Johnson also hosts ghost tours in Flagstaff. And she wrote in her book, a few weeks later, while speaking with some people regarding the ghost tour, the walk-up house came up in conversation. A 60-something-year-old man was surprised by the story. He'd been born and raised in Flagstaff and never heard it before. I'd become used to this reaction, even from those locals with deep community roots. I gave the group a brief history, and the man's eyes grew wide. We used to live across the street from that house right after we were married, he said, looking at his wife for confirmation. More than once, I thought I saw a young girl chasing a ball across the side yard. She'd run around toward the front of the house and just disappear. The thing was, no children lived there that we knew of. We'll never really know why Marie felt as though she had no choice but to kill her children. We don't know if there was some mental illness she was suffering from, or perhaps even postpartum depression. It's not surprising that there would be some spiritual residue left behind on the former walk-up property. Is there a haunting connected to the walk-up family murders? That is for you to decide. Thanks so much for listening to History Ghost Bumps, Phantasmal Crime. If you'd like to share with us a haunted crime that you've heard about, please write us at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I've been your host, Diane. Join me on the next episode for another trip through the shadows. This has been a production of History Goes Bump podcast.